Welcome to One Drop Leads to Another, a podcast exploration about water on Cape Cod and our personal connections to it. In this episode, we're talking with Kristen Andres, who's the Associate Director of Education and Outreach for the Association to Preserve Cape Cod. So good to see you. We're happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. It's great to see you again and meet you. Mm -hmm. Likewise. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So Kristen, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for folks who may not be familiar with who you are and the work that you're doing. Sure. Well, I've been with the Association of Preserve Cape Cod as a staff member for uh, over five years now. And uh, before that, I was the conservation agent in Chatham for well over 15, 16 years, something like that. What is it that you do at the Association to Preserve Cape Cod or APCC? And what is it that they do? Sure. Uh, APCC is uh, the region's environmental advocacy organization. We've been around since 1968, so well over 50 50 years now. And um, We're a voice for the environment, we like to say. We have a lot of initiatives. Our mission is to preserve, protect, and enhance the Cape's natural resources, and we do that through advocacy for good environmental policies. We educate, um, and that's my primary job. And we have citizen scientist programs, like we help with the um, gathering the information and helping organize herring monitors each spring to count the herring. And we also have a cyanobacteria monitoring program around our freshwater ponds. So through science, and uh, we also are involved in restoration projects too, which is uh, new in the last several years, working with towns across Cape Cod to improve habitat quality, uh, critical habitat, and water quality improvement. And we've worked with towns specifically on uh, stormwater improvement projects. So that's been really exciting. Worked with the town of Barnstable for several years over a multi multi-year grants on improving stormwater quality using green infrastructure, which incorporates, uh, it's a nature-based, envir- uh, nature-based engineering that incorporates native plants to help take up nutrients and improve water quality before it enters our embayments. Really a lot of stuff there. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. <laughs> um, so, so can we take a, maybe a little bit deeper a dive on the projects that you're most associated with? I know you do a lot with native plants and those things. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. That's my, uh, my forte. Um, when we moved into our office in 2016, now for over 48 years, the organization rented office space. So we finally bought our place in Dennis on 6A. And it was my job to use the grounds, convert the grounds from a traditional landscape into one that incorporated native plants. And ever since I read Doug Tallamy's first book, Bringing Nature Home, uh, it's like a light bulb went on because his focus as an entomologist is looking at native plants and how they support our local food webs, not just, uh, well, pollinators, but all sorts of insects. And of course, you know, plants are the basis of life on the planet. And uh, so just drawing that connection between our landscapes and what we plant to our to my conservation environmental interests was just uh, the light bulb went on. So ever since then, I think that's been my personal focus in my career and was very pleased to be able to come work for the Association of Preserve Cape Cod and continue on doing that through our programming and through our landscape at the office. I have to say, when you drive by the office, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It makes me want to like stop and, and explore. And one of the things that really comes to mind when I drive by, you're on the way to Captain Frosty's for me, so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that we have this paradigm of these rolling green lawns and lots of hydrangeas and maybe some roses. 
And the APCC headquarters looks very different than this sort of image of a classic Cape Cod. But of course, in its own way, it is classic. Can you kind of paint a picture of what people might see when they drive by? Uh, I would say the focus of our native plant initiative really is important about looking at our landscapes in a different way. So you're right, that traditional paradigm the traditional landscape paradigm is is lawns and um, some non-native plants, and you know usually there's chemicals involved in irrigation. And we're really working to get folks to take a different look at their landscapes. And we w- we'd really like to change that paradigm to one that's more environmentally sensitive and one that incorporates native plants that are going to support pollinators and birds and kick the chemicals and the fertilizers because here on Cape Cod we just it's so important for our uh, our water that obviously we get from our aquifer that precipitation needs to soak into the ground and be cleansed before it gets to our groundwater and we don't need to be dumping fertilizers and chemicals in our landscape it's just not healthy for us here on Cape Cod trying to get folks to see their landscapes in a different way. Um, That's why we did the sort of demonstration of what that might look like. You can do native plants and you can go chemical-free without having the wild and crazy landscape design that maybe ours might look like to some people who are neatniks with their landscape, you know, how they like to look at their landscapes. I understand everybody has a different... We all decorate our interior, the interior of our homes differently. But ours is one example with low meadow... Um, We incorporate grass only for our walking paths because that's all we need it for. Also cuts down in our maintenance so we don't have to be mowing. Um, We don't have a lot of time and energy to be doing that kind of thing. And when we first planted our low meadow, it was just so wonderful to see it come alive. And our little meeting room, we would sit there and look out the window and you could see the butterflies and the bumblebees and the birds. Uh, It's just, it was lovely to see life. And personally, that's my, you know, wonderful um, part about landscaping and gardening is just having that daily discovery of what's living in my backyard, front yard and at the office. And I desperately try to take pictures and videos of whatever I find. So I almost feel like you should have a live cam watching, you know, and, and, and observing so that people you know, that are sitting inside, maybe working remotely from a place less attractive, <laughs> can see what's going on over there. Mm-hmm. Are there any hardscape elements that you've used that are like sort of atypical? Yeah, we did incorporate a stone wall. And uh, that was kind of from a design perspective, trying to have some anchor of the front yard so it didn't look like total chaos. <laughs> um, and uh, a friend, um, Brian Smith from New England Stoneworks, uh, did it pro bono. And it's a repurposed stone wall. We didn't buy any stone. It was stone left over in somebody's uh, yard from another project. And um, it's blocks of granite that were repurposed from bridge abutments. So Brian tells me there's a piece of the Longfellow Bridge there. So. Mm. <laughs> it's a good story and I'm sticking to it yeah but it is it's pretty cool it's uh, a different look but it's yeah and it's helpful it's a sitting wall so when we're out there with a small group of people talking to them they can sit on the wall oh where form meets function yeah right right. right. and and correct me if I'm wrong you have a a permeable pavement driveway too right yes when we uh, we knew that was something we wanted to incorporate again I mentioned this green infrastructure a way to manage stormwater with more thinking about how nature really handles precipitation and 
what we've installed for our handicapped parking area and the path leading to the ramp is porous pave, which is a permeable surface. It's only a couple inches thick, and it's made from recycled tires mixed with an adhesive. The water flows right through the surface and continues straight through because beneath it, there's uh, 12 inches of compacted three-quarter inch stone. And that's kind of typical of any permeable surfaces having that compacted stone beneath, uh, as opposed to the traditional way, which is using bluestone dust and creating a hard, solid surface. So uh, it allows the water to flow right through and soak into the ground like nature intended within the root zone. And so we don't get any puddling. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's really soft under the feet. There's no ice that forms on it. It's kind of kind of cool. Yeah. And has that held up well over the years? It has, yeah, it really has. And I think it's perfect for pathways. Uh, we have it in a handicap area where, parking area, where cars turn a lot. And so it's held up perfectly fine. And again, I think for walking paths, what paths, it's uh, really terrific because it's soft underfoot and mm. not slippery. I hadn't even thought of that, <laughs> that particular use. That's really neat. Hmm. Was it a local company that put that in? Or is it like, did you have to do some kind of cost-benefit analysis of like, traditional asphalt paving to accommodate all the needs and abilities. You know, I deal with chemicals a lot that people use to maintain their homes and driveway sealer shows up a lot, you know, and it has this really intense smell and this look and... Sure, there are uh, different types of permeable surfaces. Uh, We pretty much went with one that was very expensive. Uh, I had a friend from off Cape who was certified in applying it far as I know, there was nobody here on Cape Cod that oh. is a certified installer. We did have a little snafu when we first had it put in because the subcontractor went about putting in the base the traditional way with bluestone dust, and we had to have him remove it. So there's really a, a need on Cape Cod for uh, contractors who understand this new new uh, green infrastructure and these new materials and what their function is and how they have to be installed. Um, There's permeable concrete, which is an alternative, and there's a local company that does that in Orleans. Uh, Same thing, the permeable concrete is laid on top of that 10 to 12 inches of compacted stone. Same with porous pavers or permeable pavers. We've heard about those for years, and I think a lot of, as a conservation agent, a lot of people put those in, but they were never truly permeable because they were put on stone dust. (laughs) Oh, so you know, yeah. hindsight's twenty twenty. We are kind of all naive about how it was really supposed, how they're really supposed to work. So it always pays to get a certified contractor to install a permeable uh, material. We only did it because, again, we had to have a hard surface for our handicapped parking area, and we chose the porous pave, the recycled tires, because we thought it was a twofer, or it is. You know, we recycled about three hundred tires, Oof. as we figured. But there are other alternatives for hard surfaces that are permeable if, if that's what you need and looking for that function the same way. I know you do a lot with, uh, with rain barrels. Uh, your newsletter always lists the, <laughs> the latest <laughs> rain barrel developments at APCC. Is that, a, is that a really popular program that you guys like? Do, do people really ask for those quite frequently? We do. It's, it's become a, you know, people, we have a lot of gardeners on Cape Cod, you know, and um, it's kind of been, it's been an interesting way to introduce people into thinking about water on their properties and rainwater and what that means to Cape Cod because we depend on our precipitation obviously for our groundwater uh, recharge and 
So the rain barrels are a great way, again, just to slow people down and make them think how rainwater can be better for their plants than drawing water from the tap, which obviously takes energy when we're drawing water. Our town water is pulling water from the ground, and then it's being treated to address the pH. And um, so if we can harvest a little bit of rainwater for our flowered, our flowering plants, right. maybe that's good. It seems like a good sort of intersection, you know, the using rain barrels and also native plantings. It seems like mm-hmm. a very harmonious way of doing that. It also feels like, and I like the term that you used of slowing down. Uh, growing up on Cape Area, people always talked about here as an island. And we we're on like, in a way, island time. We're not on, you know, your same time zone type thing. And, you know, the Cape has really changed uh, in the last couple of decades. And there is this imperative to move more quickly and when you when you say that, it brings up to me like the climate change associated with clean drinking water for your that could be used for your garden, right? So all water is treated to that drinkable state that comes in through your house, but I think it's only one percent that's actually used for to drink, right? So the rest of it's used to flush the toilet and whatnot. And then you're talking about you know these low meadows and permeable surfaces that don't take a lot of fossil fuels to maintain. And there is that slowing down, like that you don't have to mow. Do you have any thoughts about this, like kind of faster paced versus slower? I know this is kind of a a leap, but like almost in a way like slow food, a slow environment. Yeah, interesting. Um, I do think with rain barrels as the example, um, using a watering can again. I mean, I think we've all gotten away from that, particularly If you've got a traditional landscape with irrigation, you're just flipping a switch or you've got it on a timer. But to actually go out to your garden and fill up a watering can or two and walk to your garden and water each plant. When we planted our individual plants, when we were redoing our landscape, um, it was a way to make sure each plant got water. And you actually took a look at it as opposed to just flipping the irrigation switch. And, you know, it's good exercise and all of that, too. And I think there's just there's good uh emotional mindfulness that goes along with that. Absolutely. Um, Looking at that plant, seeing what's attracted to that plant, all the little flies and the little wasps and the little bees and what have you. And I think getting away from the, the mowing and the, I know there's a big, there's a big push for quiet communities as a, as an organization, quietcommunities.org, which makes a lot of sense when you think about how we manage our landscapes, uh, particularly lawns, really a fossil fuel dependent landscape feature, not only from the fertilizer standpoint, but also from the maintenance. You know, most landscape equipment is gas powered. And um, so there's carbon emissions. You know, if you're maintaining your landscape with uh, the traditional uh, lawnmower, and if you use any of those other gas powered equipment, you know, your carbon footprint's kind of big when it comes to your landscape maintenance. And there's an alternative to that. One of it isn't by design, by designing less area to be maintained. The other is switching how you're doing it. Go to electric, lots of good electric equipment out there. Not really trying to tell people exactly how to take, how to design and take care of their properties, but there are alternatives and it's helpful to think of things differently. We've made shifts in society related to our health and we can do the same and should be thinking about the same when it comes to our landscapes, not only for our health, the health of the environment, but also climate change, carbon footprint. Mm. You know, as you were talking, I was kind of, I was thinking about Michael Pollan. He has this saying in one of his books, which is, um, eat food, (laughs) not too much, 
mostly plants. And I think that's kind of like what you're talking about, which is don't use lawns, <laughs> don't put stuff on it, <laughs> and try to switch to electric if you're going to be, you know, if you're going to have any sort of maintenance activities. And you're right, those the battery-powered tools have come a long way. I mean, I personally, I, I invested in a, a battery-powered weed whacker last year, and it's, it's fantastic because not only is it, think much more uh, environmentally conscious, but it's also much quieter. You know, I don't feel like I'm just waking up the whole neighborhood on a Sunday morning to weed whack. <laughs> so I think there's also that, and you kind of brought this up, that mindfulness, that relaxation that comes with being in your yard and, you know, a gas-powered lawnmower, weed whacker. It's There's like almost an accelerant to your energy, you know, where you, you know, you have to be, very on points, you know, there's this noise, there's this smell, it mm. almost feels like hyper urban, as opposed to this like sort of salty bucolic lifestyle that we're all trying to aspire here to on the Cape. Is this a time to put in a plug for Cape Light Compacts? They have all their yes. guests, the electric powered uh, lawn equipment, this, right? They're doing some rebates and yep. Oh. Yeah. And let's not forget the push mower. When I was yeah. a kid, now granted that was ages ago, but my grandmother had a push mower. And, you know, you can buy new ones today and they'll do a great job. Um, Who needs CrossFit when you... Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, anyway. Yeah, yeah I think like those... Long, uh, I bought one. No, actually I found one. I was up in uh, Lubeck, Maine, getting some piece of furniture and I found a, a wooden push mower and at the time I was living in Mashpee and my yard was not level and I had to push it up the hill and down the hill and it was like CrossFit or some other exercise you know and and, and my gas-powered mower and I did have one at the time was a lot less of uh, an effort and I think that's kind of what sometimes people are looking for is you know that Kind of like your, you talked about like your grandmother or something like that. Lack of, We don't need the elbow grease anymore. We want something to spray and wipe off the stain or, you know, like just have things be taken care of for us. And there's that slowing down and sort of that effort. But it's a beautiful effort, right? It takes care of your body. It takes care of the environment. It's not as toxic and unfriendly towards our planet, right? Yeah. Kind of a little bit more of a... I think a elevated mindset in a way, mm-hmm. you know, but I understand like people are busy, they're working hard, trying to maintain families and find a, uh, housing and, you know, everybody has so much to do and trying to be mindful about everything takes a lot of effort. But you're saying that people can maybe convert small pieces of their yard, right? And, and like maybe transitional. So it's not like ripping out all your grass and. Or, sure. Yeah, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, You can allow some corners of your yard to go wild. Um, If you've got a a spouse, and I hear this every time I give a talk about reducing lawn area, who says, oh, my, whatever, my significant other can't do without the lawn. You know, they just are obsessed with the lawn. So, you know, reduce a little bit of the lawn. And I think the best thing about being on Cape Cod is you could have a Cape Cod lawn Sometimes people just need permission. There's a lot of folks that have moved here, as an example, a lot of folks that have moved here from off Cape, from more city, urban areas, where they've had to sort of keep up with the Joneses, right? They needed to have their house look like the neighbors because that's just where they lived. And a friend of mine came down to live here year-round, and she wanted to know who I would recommend for a pest control person. And I said, why, do you have a pest problem? And she said, well, no, but 
don't you all down here have contracts with pest companies? And I said, no. (laughs) And she said, oh, well, where I came from, she said, you know, you would be in bad straits with the neighborhood if you didn't have a pest control Mm. contract. And uh, so she was very relieved that she could actually live in nature and and not um, have to have a service. And I think the same is for lawns and our landscapes. We can have a Cape Cod lawn because you live on Cape Cod, and a Cape Cod lawn is a natural rough lawn where anything that grows is perfectly fine. Nobody's worried about getting rid of the broadleaf broadleaf plants, Um, clover, violets, it all works, moss. Moss makes great lawn area. Um, So that also reduces, you can have a green space without having a high um, turf lawn that requires a lot of water and, and fertilizers. I've been appreciating my, and I do have a little patch of lawn because I love uh, a good game of full contact badminton. But <laughs> um, so, but I've put you know clover in mine and uh, whatnot. I live next to a swamp, and uh, I love the broadleaf plantain. When I get mm-hmm. a mosquito bite, rubbing it right on the mosquito bite. But I've come to appreciate that Cape Cod lawn a lot more since learning a little bit more about the plants that tend to show up when that are aren't cultivated by me. And I feel like, I'm not sure I want to say this, but it almost feels like an anti-colonialism of my lawn, like that, you know, I'm finding out about these weeds that show up that aren't really weeds. They're, they have a purpose Mm -hmm. and they have an attribute that can make my life a little bit more fulfilled, like not being covered in mosquito bites, but also it, like learning about those plants. I've I've signed up for foraging like listservs and uh, finding out about those little those little um, flowers, like the um, dead nettle, was always one of those things that you would pull out, right? But it actually has these wonderful characteristics that can add to my life. It, I pull them up sometimes and give them to my chickens, but it feels like it's more of like that slowing down still, learning about your environment, not overlaying your concept of reality in a way, like just rolling green lawn. Uh, monoculture right so there's that biodiversity in a way that supports life I know this is one of my rambles but it keeps feeling like it comes back to slowing down and learning about where you are and taking the time to explore your space instead of just like again just having that in a way blandness I mean Mm -hmm. we all agree grass is beautiful in its own way that emerald greenness that lushness you don't have to worry about stepping on a bee when your yard isn't full of clover, that kind of thing. But it feels more like that slowing down that we want when we come to the Cape, you know. And I don't really have a point or a question. I'm just <laughs> 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 Brian's like, oh, Clyde, stop drinking no, your no, caffeinated no. water. <laughs> you no. made me think of uh, forest bathing when you were talking about slowing down, and that's like such a great way to to make that connection if you've never gone on a forest bathing walk. Tell us more. Can you do that in your yard? Can you forest bathe, like a, a, a micro forest bathe? Sure. Like a foot bath forest it, Sure, bathe? you could. And I'm not the expert in this by any means. I have friends that are that um, do forest bathing walks all the time. Carol, Dr. Carol Marcy does it over at the Museum of Natural History and other for other groups, too. But it's really just about having a meditation. So, yeah, you could do it in your backyard. I suppose you could find some meditation book. And But it's just having that quiet moment. Sit in the backyard and just observe Mm-hmm. You know, that's what um, kind of feeds the soul. I mean, that's our connection with nature is what, is what really 
inspires and drives all of us who understand. Um, and so uh, we often talk about people who are plant blind. I don't know if you've heard that term. I have never heard that term before. Um, and I can't give you the, the woman's, the professor's name that sort of coined it many several years ago now, but it's basically that people don't, it's like people who are face blind. Maybe you've heard of that too. Mm. No? Um, anyway, people look at plants and they, they just, it looks like wallpaper or, you know, they can't discern one from another oh. or, so it's not even so much knowledge. It's just, you know, it's just not something that they pay attention to. Mm-hmm. But you can be taught to see plants and identify them and see the difference just like anything else. So nature, if you don't feel in tune to nature, it's something you can learn. And uh, even if you are are, have some semblance of connection with nature but have never gone on a forest bathing walk, it would be worth doing because it's a whole new experience. It's a little bit more of a spiritual experience. Just trying to follow up on what you're saying about uh, well, the connection with. Yeah, but um, I, I think that's what you're vibing on with when I'm talking about the lawn. You know, like I became more plant, less plant blind looking at my lawn. And I hesitate to call it a lawn because it's a lot of mishmash of things. But at a certain point, the the family tried to make it a lawn. right? And so th- there was that attempt to make it that blank green space. But things crept in. And as I learned more about the things that were creating space for themselves in the grass, like the dead nettle or the plantain, and I started learning about them, not just seeing them, but learning about them, it made it a little bit more easy to accept them, you know, in a way. So I I like that term plant blind because I think a lot of people could identify that, especially if they didn't grow up being told, you know, this is a geranium or a delphinium or whatever, like even basic stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah, you talk about uh, if you had the nice green lawn, those things would be considered weeds. But I always like to say, I mean, what's a weed? A weed isn't really a thing. I mean, it's just just something you don't want. It's a concept. It's not an actual thing. Right. Um, And just allowing those to integrate into your space. And that's what my lawn is. You know, I mow it, but that's it. You know, I don't put any effort beyond that. And it looks fine you know the kids the kids beat it up anyway so <laughs> you know, they're yeah. going to do what they do with it anyway and then you're not creating the space for your kids that's sort of imbued with toxic chemicals also right. and I think that that's really important when we talk about creating this healthy habitat for ourselves both inside and out right mm-hmm. that our pets are frolicking in the space hopefully they have a chance to frolic there's birds and there's the wild environment and the nature that comes in but there are the the young ones like you know and 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 they have a different reaction to what's put onto the grass to make it that gorgeous emerald green that so many people aspire to and maybe that's a byproduct of this natural environment is that you're having this healthy space for your family and your pets to enjoy also that's mm-hmm. not you know never mind the stray owl or whomever that comes by there was a horrible story in the paper the other day of a owl family that had died one owlet was found and then it had been um poisoned with pesticides you know so it had eaten a rodent but then they found out that the whole family had died uh, this was i forget somewhere on the cape i was reading it in the um the the news feed I guess, you know, that the parent owl had brought the rodent back and however they feed their their owlets, all of them had gotten access to the rodenticide. You know, you're not just protecting your own family and pets, but also the, the natural environment that d- does tend to mm-hmm. surround us. Yeah. 
Just another point. No questions. Yeah. <laughs> one of my rambles. <laughs> yeah. I could talk with you all day. But one of the things that I think that we've overlooked is the dandelion. It's kind of reviled in a lot of, cult, you know, a lot of our sort of, I don't know, lawn conversations. People are always trying to dig it out. And, and um, I noticed when I put my bees in the other day that uh, immediately that was one of the first things the, the domesticated bees that live on the property went for was the dandelion, one of the first forage foods, right? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I'm happy to see them. They're, you know, who, who can't enjoy that nice, bright yellow color in the spring? And they have been vilified. Um, it's not a native plant. You know, obviously they can spread very easily. So I've had people ask me what to do about them. Are they invasive? Are they a non-native invasive plant? Well, I don't know if they would be termed invasive, you know, you spread a technically invasive, but obviously, okay. yeah, they kind of spread where they want but via the wind. But uh, I say eat them, you know, eat, eat dandelion salad, collect the blossoms. You can um, make a syrup out of them for your iced tea. You just know, There's lots of recipes out there for them anyway. So that's what I would say to do with them. Um, as opposed to, you know, trying to herbicide them. I think that that's not too healthy for our landscapes. But I have heard, too, that they're not necessarily offering the same pollen protein that our wild bees need. Oh, um, tell and us this, more about that. Yeah. Well, I, I can't cite the scientific paper on that. It's just what I've read in a few places. Uh, I would probably refer folks to reading Heather Holmes' books. Um, I think she's the source maybe that would have some information on that. Um, she's this fantastic biologist that has written several books on wild bees and wasps. But uh, this is where our, our native insects, you know, have evolved with our native plants. And they are um, pollinators, um, include bees and butterflies and moths and all sorts of insects. And they have these very complex relationships. And while butterflies, like the monarch butterfly, we kind of, most people... Not, although not everybody, but a lot of people know the story of the monarch butterfly and milkweed. It's the only plant group that the milkweed butterfly's caterpillar can eat. So if we want to have monarch butterflies, we have to have milkweed. Uh, similar with some bees, there are a lot of wild bees that are specialists and that depend on certain plants or groups of plants. We have specialized bees in New England that are very good pollinators and have evolved closely with blueberries. So blueberry, huckleberry, high bush blueberry, low bush blueberry, cranberry. And um, so their life cycles are dependent on those plants. There are long-tongued bees and short-tongued bees, and um, you know they have specific plants that they've evolved with that they depend on. Just that our, our native plants, it's really important to have a lot of those. So while we can you know, dandelions aren't worth putting herbicide on. I think there's a, a risk there that's probably not worth it. There's other ways you could deal with dandelions. But um, native plants and the, the connection with our wild bees and forage for all sorts of pollinators is really important. If there were like two or three native plant species that you could say, you know, are relatively easy for people to grow, like what, what would that short list of species like? If somebody asks you, what native plants can I use? What's your short list? Well, I mean, milkweed is probably a really great plant. There's different species that grow really well and um, different depending on what your place is that you want to plant them. There's the rose milkweed, Asclepius incarnata, which is happy with uh, a little bit moister soils or your average garden soil and maybe a few hours of shade every day. 
There's uh, Asclepia tuberosa or butterfly milkweed, which does fine in really dry, hot, tough areas and um, grows pretty compact. Uh, doesn't get much higher than a foot and a half. And if you've got kind of a wild area, uh, the common milkweed is great. You know, it's kind of like something you'd have in a wild pasture or like at my house at the end of the messy driveway um, mm-hmm. and just let it go. And uh, it has wonderful fragrance. And all of those three milkweeds are fairly easy to find seed for. Um, you may very well find them at a nursery and you'll attract monarch butterflies and help for the next generation of monarchs. So while the monarch butterfly can get nectar from anywhere, the caterpillar needs the milkweed. So anyway, milkweeds would be the first species. Yep. Yep. Um, and then it's important to have um, spring, summer, and fall. So I'd say for spring, maybe um, wild columbine just comes to mind. It's an easy one to grow, and it self-seeds. And so you get this lovely little red bell flower uh, in the early spring. And then in the fall, goldenrods and asters, um, there's just... You can't go wrong with any of them in the right place. Right. Thank you. I bought some from uh, the department I work for at the county, uh, the Cooperative Extension, some asters and some uh, goldenrod, and put them down by the front, you know, by the my messy driveway. (laughs) And uh, they look so beautiful with the purple and the, the golden color. Um, my daughter, who has allergies, kind of complained, and then I found out that goldenrod is not a wind-driven pollen um, source for allergies. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Mm-hmm. So, is there a perception about goldenrod that is that it, like spurs allergies, but in fact it doesn't? Is that accurate? Yeah, that's correct. Most a lot of people um, are under that impression that goldenrod is what gives them the fall hay fever when. Uh, in reality, it's the ragweed and other grasses that are windblown pollen. You're right, the goldenrod, it's a heavy, wet pollen. It depends on insects to move the pollen from one plant to another. So it's not goldenrod. I've even seen people say that their allergy doctors have said they're allergic to goldenrod. I have not been able to, I, did, I started doing some online research to try to get at the bottom of that. And so if anybody knows <laughs> an allergy doctor who who believes that and says that to their patient. I'd like, I'd be curious to know how that information got uh, spread that way because I mean, maybe they are allergic to it, but you'd have to stick the golden, your face in the golden rod to have an allergic reaction. I would think. Yeah. So I think that there are (laughs) native plants around that you can buy like, um, uh, not just through Barnstable County, but I I see native plant sales around. So I think you just kind of have to look for them and then find out more about them. Right. Because like, we just dispelled one myth, the mm-hmm. goldenrod myth, and I think people might have other ones that they think that they need to like c- take care of them in a certain way or something. But they're very easy uh, to take care of. They pretty much tend to like where you plant them on the Cape because they're native to here. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's right plant, right place. There's lots of great plant sales. Uh, anytime you go, if you're really you know, going to focus on native plants, do your homework first so that you know what it is you're looking for. It's still right plant, right place. So, you know, you want to get a plant that's going to grow in the sunlight conditions that you have. And um, But um, there are lots of good native plants for sale out there. They've come on the market a lot more in the last few years. Uh, we've been, a bunch of us have been working at this for many, many years now. And we've started to see uh, a lot of our retail nurseries on the Cape here carry more native plants. But the, the consumer needs to know what they want. So look at that scientific name. Don't let it scare you. You need to understand what that is because we can all be fooled 
uh, thinking that we, oh yeah, that was the plant I wanted because it sounds like what I was thinking I wanted. And then you get it home. And when you do some more research, you find out it's really from some other part of the country or the world, and it's not really a native. And then getting back to plant sales, there's a, a Several garden clubs, as well as the extension service there, has, have, are doing more native plants in their sales. And, of course, APCC has a plant sale coming up. Oh, do up. you? Sorry, I didn't mean to <laughs> overlook you. Is it coming up? So this is where it may now. When is your garden? When is your plant sale? It's going to um, be the first week of June. So June oh, 6th, um, the, uh, it'll go live. It's an online ordering and then pickup. I'm a little obsessive about these native plants now that so <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Thank you for joining us for this chinwag and tune in again next time to one drop leads to another. The challenge for this episode um, will be to take a look at your own yard, your own surroundings, maybe slow down a little bit, um, grab a watering can and uh, go and water each individual plant and just study them a little bit and think about how you can make some changes to your own landscaping that are a little bit more environmentally sustainable and use a little bit less water too. And the action item would be to Google or search for the Pollinator Pathway Cape Cod website, check it out and get some inspiration and see how you can take some of their inspiration into your own life. Thank you, Kristen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.